0: Britain's most successful export: The Beatles, Grand Theft Auto, the concept of queuing, or is it chocolate? The purple packaging of Cadbury's chocolate is some of the most famous in the world. The Birmingham-based beer moth is Britain's biggest brand and the second largest confectionery company globally only beaten to the pip by Mars Incorporated, the US-based conglomerate that also doubles as a pet food and animal services empire. Despite being acquired by American company Kraft in 2009, many of us still see Cadbury's as a beloved British family brand. Cadbury's was founded by a Quaker family who gave their name to the iconic brand. The Victorian clientele of John Cadbury's Birmingham shop were initially on the wealthier end of the financial spectrum. They'd head to his premises to pick up tea, coffee and drinking chocolate. But, after the invention of the mass-produced chocolate bar in 1849, the Cadbury's fortunes soared and they soon became the chocolate supplier to Queen Victoria. But it was when Cadbury's sons, Richard and George, took over the business in 1861 that the Cadbury's brand we know and mostly love today emerged. As the business went from strength to strength, the Cadburys simultaneously made a name for themselves, ethical businessmen, building a model village named Bourneville for workers and railing against the evils of exploitative labour. But the Cadburys themselves were not exempt from stories of exploitation. Far from it. In fact, they were about to profit directly from it themselves. And the entire story of chocolate in Britain is one bound up with a very bitter tasting history. I'm Moira McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history, and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. The Cadburys emerged at the tail end of Britain's overt involvement in the slave trade. Officially, slavery in the British Empire had been abolished in 1833, and as Quakers, the Cabries were deeply opposed to the practice. But not every empire had been so quick to rid themselves of their enslaved population. According to historian Lindsay Flewelling, Cabries imported around 55% of their cocoa beans from West African plantations on the island of Sao Tome. Officially, the some 40,000 slaves on the island were contract workers who had signed their freedom away in order for the Portuguese colonial government to circumvent the fact that they had technically abolished slavery. But really, these workers were slaves. The death rate was around 20% per year, and the labourers and their offspring were considered the property of plantation owners. Cadbury's had been sourcing beans from São Tomé since 1886, and in 1901, William Cadbury was tipped off as to the extent of the slave labour going on to produce the beans when he saw an ad, including slaves for sale, alongside a plantation. He investigated and was assured the practice would end. It didn't. Despite calls from fellow Quakers to divest from using the plantations, it took Cabri's nine years to finally boycott Sao Tome's slave labour and urged their fellow chocolate makers to do so as well. Their reason? They didn't want to disrupt their cocoa bean supply, aka their sales, until they had locked down an alternative exporter. Cabri's Sao scandal was a very small part of a story they entered late. The rise of chocolate in the UK was fueled by a commodity that would drive much of the early slave trade, become a key emblem of class and would forever change the fortunes of Britain. Sugar. Sugar was one of the main exports from the plantation systems of the Caribbean in the 1800s and a key driver of slavery. Here in Britain, people went mad for the sweet stuff. As it became more widely available, it fuelled everything from the creation of afternoon tea for the decadent upper classes to the invention of the tea break, where a sugary cup of tea replaced beer to keep labouring classes energetic in between shifts. In parallel with the rise of sugar was the growing appetite for chocolate, which combined two plantation exports, cocoa beans and sugar, into one product.
1: Britain is slowly realising how little it knows about its own colonial history through its own deliberate ignorance and refusing to admit the negative, huge, massive negative parts of our, most of our history. But yeah, I think people are getting slowly but surely better at educating themselves. And chocolate is just a particularly dramatic example because it has so many positive connotations for people around holidays and family and love that getting people to see the negatives of it is a bit more immediate because every you know agro business around the world will have the same kind of issues but no one cares quite so much if their oils or grains have these like problems associated with them but chocolate can really like get to the heart of it for people a bit more bring it closer to home this
0: is craig meathen from brixton's chocolate museum during one of the UK's lockdown intermissions, I visited the Chocolate Museum for a private tasting and making workshop. This is the type of workshop you might usually visit as part of a school trip or maybe even a hen party. Craig is a chocolate historian and usually gives guests the history of chocolate focusing on how it has changed over the years. We spoke with him during our chocolate workshop to find out more about chocolate's beginnings.
1: Well, history of chocolate. So the first evidence we have of like people making chocolate Is in Central America and kind of Mesoamerica around 4,000 years ago. That's where the cocoa tree is indigenous to. Originally, the Olmec and Mayan and later Aztec people were the first to cultivate it, and to them, it was uh, a very important, almost like sacred food. They call it the food of the gods. Mm. So it's tied into lots of their religious practices and it was very important to them. They didn't also make chocolate bars or anything like the kind of chocolate products we have today. Back then, they mostly had it as a a drink. They grind up the beans and they'd use them to make a a drink with cold water and spices, like chilli and cinnamon mixed in. So it was this cold, bitter, spicy drink, which is very, very different to how we imagine chocolate drinks today. They would have those at like religious ceremonies as part of important events like weddings and birthdays and all these sorts of things. Um, So it's always been a kind of political and important Thing. It was never something kind of for most of Chocolate's history kind of eaten by the general population. Cocoa beans were also used as currency, so it's always also been tied to money and, and trade. And you know, the Aztecs, when they conquered through Central and uh, Northern South America, they had cocoa beans shipped up from the place where it was made, up towards their capital and to bolster their wealth, along with, with gold. Cocoa beans were, were kind of almost as important as that.
0: So the cocoa bean was held in high esteem, food of the gods. I understand how it was moved across the North American continent, which is still relatively close to where the bean originates. But how did it end up here, in Britain?
1: In the early 1500s, when Spanish conquerors, explorers meets the Aztecs, that is when cocoa first like leaves uh, Central America and is brought back.
0: I just want to jump in here. When Spanish conquerors meet the Aztecs, that is a polite way of saying Spanish conqueror Hernán Cortés led an expedition that led to the fall of the Aztec Empire.
1: The Spanish explorers don't have too high an opinion of it when it is first tried, but as like many of the spoils of the New World, it's brought over and eventually people in Europe start to like change the recipe. Uh, but it's still basically only drunk by kings and queens and nobles and elites, so it's still something reserved for the, quote, most important people in society. Monks in Spain who end up adding, like, honey and sugar and making it into this, like, sweet beverage. So then that starts to circulate around Europe through the 15, 16, 1700s. In London, places like chocolate houses start to spring up, which are kind of like coffee shops. Places for the gentry, for politicians in high society to, like, meet and discuss ideas. So again, still at this point, is kind of luxury good, drunken and, and used by the, the higher-ups and then slowly it becomes uh, a bit easier to, to mass produce thanks to colonialism basically in the slave trade in Britain getting these colonies all across the world it can find much easier ways to to bring cocoa beans and cocoa into the country. Eventually cocoa is moved from Central America into the Caribbean and then from the Caribbean to West Africa and eventually Southeast Asia, and all these places across the equator are where we now grow cocoa. Even though it was originally from Central America, nowadays it's West Africa that grows over 70% of the cocoa in the world today. When it comes to Britain's history with chocolate, Britain was the, the first country to make a chocolate bar. Uh, a company called Fry's Chocolate made the first bar in 1847, first chocolate bar. And all the are like, very first big chocolate companies. Most of the names are still very recognisable.
0: Thanks to colonialism, I know Craig was being ironic there, Coco was able to be moved around the world and grown in countries with similar climates as Central America. We speak a lot about the plantation and slave networks. But here is yet another example of a niche treat or luxury building the foundations to become a mammoth industry. During our workshop, I asked Craig about sugar, because although dark, pure, bitter chocolate is still available en masse, the chocolate we know is sweet. When does the idea of putting sugar and cocoa together happen?
1: Yeah, that's very much a case of Europe having a much sweeter tooth than the rest of the world at the time, and sugar also being this like luxury commodity that could be farmed across like the Caribbean, and it was you know a major source of wealth for for Great Britain through its colonies. So anytime you could add sugar to something to make it more popular to increase the wealth of sugar and the uses of it, they would. So in combination with other things that would make the rich money, uh, yeah, sugar ends up becoming a major, major part of of chocolate.
0: When discussing chocolate's history, it's easy to gloss over its brutal past that in many ways still informs how it's traded today. So when Craig mentioned luxury commodities that could be farmed, I wanted to understand what farming at that time actually meant. Yeah, it was
1: often grown on plantations worked by enslaved peoples. Cocoa and sugar were both grown massively in Jamaica, which was one of Britain's biggest like colonies at the time, or one that made them the most money, which was like massively populated by enslaved peoples working for a very small number of British companies or families. So even like very high profile things like the first kind of milk chocolate, drinking chocolate, first one that was mass market in the UK was by Hans Sloan, who is also the founder of the British Museum. And his collection, as well as his like wealth was largely made like physically collected with uh, the forced help of these enslaved peoples at the time. so. Yeah, lots of the the history of it is just deeply tied up with trying to make as much money through enslaved labour and plantations across the world as they could.
0: Hans Sloan, the British Museum. These are names and institutions, as Craig says, that are deeply tied with slavery. And we will revisit and dive deeper into these connections. But for now, chocolate. Craig said, obviously, there were cocoa plantations in Jamaica. Were there anywhere else in other colonies? Was that why Britain became the leader in chocolate developments, as it were? Because they had that colonial power and that slave labour.
1: In the Caribbean and Central and South America, cocoa was kind of almost exclusively produced there up until the late 1800s. There were a few small plantations in uh, Indonesia and Southeast Asia, but it was like at the end of the 19th century when I think it was like Portuguese colonies imported cocoa over to West Africa, and particularly to some, the first ones were two islands off the coast of West Africa, uh, Prance Bay and San Tomé. And that was, then they became like major cocoa growers through the 19th century, because due to various wars and political instability through the 19th century, it was just much, much more difficult to import things from the Americas. So yeah, people were just looking for cheaper and easier ways to grow it. And that was when it moved into West Africa. So now it's like Ghana and the Ivory Coast that around 120 years ago, they first became kind of cocoa growing countries. And that is now like a major part of their, their economy, that sort of thing. But it was through trying to find cheaper, easier options for the big cocoa companies that they moved to these other parts of the world.
0: I wanted to know whether at the start the chocolate industry was a calculated move or purely created by accident. I mean you had this bean that was pretty bitter but highly revered among highbrow society. And those in that society had access to or owned and ran plantations where they could grow cocoa and sugar. Was the cocoa trade purely a show of power and wealth or was it just that it tasted good?
1: I definitely think that through the the fifteen to like the 1800s it was very much this luxury good. It wasn't necessarily like marketed or sold as a, a delicious luxury thing. It was a yeah, an interesting commodity for the rich. It's only like with companies like Capri's and these big brands where they start to try to change the branding of chocolate to make it this mass market, kind of a like, cheap luxury that everyone can mm-hmm. afford. So we have like around the museum lots of old advertisements and things. So there's some very new to me where they're trying to like show off the health values of chocolate when compared to meat and vegetables and (laughs) potatoes and that it's so much healthier for you which is obviously something that no one could really get away with or try to do today but yeah you you see that our modern day idea of chocolate is so wrapped up in the marketing it's had and making it synonymous with like holidays and a gift for people you love and uh yeah the companies are very successfully ...turned it into this positive, lovely, very cheap luxury good... Mm. <laughs> ...which can be quite problematic for like the chocolate industry... ...where we don't like to think about all the huge negatives it has um, around the world.
0: Craig mentioned chocolate houses earlier... ...and this is an area I'm extremely interested in. I know of White's, which is London's oldest gentleman's club... ...founded in 1693... It's still going today, in SW1, with notable members including Prince Charles, Prince William and former Prime Minister David Cameron. When the club was originally founded, it was called Mrs White's Chocolate House. I wondered whether Craig had any more info about chocolate houses.
1: Around Westminster and things was like the the heart of them. But they did have some in other uh, cities in the UK as well. But yeah, they were just places where often it was actual like members of parliament and like the the highest levels of society at that time where they would meet and, and drink because at that point alcohol isn't sort of doesn't have like status or things so you're not likely to go to like a high quality like bar or something for, for drinks and spirits or these kind of things so like coffee and chocolate are much more expensive and have a higher kind of social cachet than, than other things so yeah you would meet in these places to to talk business and uh, how, your country and other countries you control are going to be run. So yeah, it was just right at the centre of power for a long
0: time. The origins of chocolate as this sacred food of the gods to its status in society becoming the drink of choice for the mighty and powerful are a far cry from me popping to my local shop and picking up a fruit or nut. Where does this cosy image of chocolate come from? It seems like a commodity that gets excused from a lot of the conversations around exploitation that people might automatically attach to other food, like meat or fish, for example.
1: Cadbury's, fries, and uh, trees were all like Quaker family companies who, you know, founded these businesses and on kind of positive moral principles. Lots of people have maybe heard of Cadbury's that they built the Bourneville kind of town for their workers with, you know, public amenities and housing for the workers, um, but no pubs. Uh, I think chocolate was seen as just like a positive like alternative to negative things like alcohol, but still be profited and capitalised off of the labour of people in the rest of the world and through the colonies.
0: I'm sitting in the middle of what looks like a film set. It's a perfect little chocolate box Victorian village, all gorgeous caramel and white houses surrounding a quaint little green space in the centre. To my left, there's an ornate cricket pavilion, and to my right, I can see what looks like a former red brick school. It's the sort of place where it seems like real life can't touch you. Certainly, nothing bad could happen. And that was the idea. This is Bourneville, the village built by the Cadbury family in 1900 for workers at their nearby factory. The Cadburys were Quakers. They believed in keeping their workforce happy, healthy and fit, both mentally and physically. Hence the rowing lake and the cricket pitch, but also schools, museums and reading rooms. Since 1990, it's also been the route that millions of excited families have walked as they make their way to the Willy Wonka factory of dreams, the tourist attraction Cadbury World. Bourneville is a home that fits right into the great British Cadbury story of entrepreneurship, chocolate and sweet treats. Cadbury's world was like a real-life Willy Wonka tour. But it was interesting seeing the final step of the chocolate process and how far removed it appears to be from its origins.
1: So much of cocoa is still like farmed in West Africa, particularly today, just like does still exist in very, like, colonial systems like it hasn't changed very much throughout the 20th century but like now almost like over 90% of the cocoa is farmed by like small freeholds like it it, like not huge farms it's like small farmers and family farms and small grobs like trying to make some money out of it but very small amount of the profits actually go to the growers and the farmers despite that the entire you know like a 200 billion dollar industry or something couldn't exist without them. But it's like for every wool, imagine you like a regular one pound chocolate bar from the shop, like the farmers are going to see like less than seven pence of that, whereas the the company that markets it and makes it will earn like 50p and the producers that process the beans in between the farms and the companies will get like 35. So. Yeah, there is there's lots of companies and industries trying to do things to help that make some difference, things like fair trade and uh, nowadays every company has their own fair trade label, slightly like less helpful. but lots is left over from the kind of colonial systems of farming these goods.
0: The colonial and slave systems that helped cocoa become the chocolate empire we know are still impacting people today. Slavery is still a big part of the chocolate industry. And farmers, mainly in West Africa, are still being exploited. I wanted to get a better understanding
2: of the modern chocolate trade. Cocoa nowadays is grown on millions of tiny farms in Western Africa of which Ghana and Ivory Coast are the major cocoa producing countries. They produce more than 60% of all cocoa in the whole wide world. And in those two countries alone, there's more than two and a half million farms that grow cocoa. On those farms, there are more than one and a half million children working under illegal circumstances, of which 95% even work in hazardous situations. And then the very worst situations is where more than 30,000 children are subject to something that can be considered modern slavery. So these are kids that are forced to do unpaid work outside of the family environment. That is ridiculous. 2021 for a product that everybody should be able to enjoy. So in short, that is the essence of the problem in the cocoa industry, which is a very widespread issue, but very unknown at the same time. So this is why we need to create awareness around that issue. And this is also why we need to start putting our hands together and solve that problem, because it can be done.
0: This is Enzo van Zanten, Tony Chocoloni's chocolate evangelist. Yes, that was a mouthful. From speaking with Craig and Enzo, it's clear the chocolate industry is far from being exploitation-free, and it touches nearly every brand we know.
2: I'm not very much into naming or shaming, but you can consider the fact that there are a couple of major chocolate-producing companies in the world, like Olam, Cargill, Callebaut. There's a couple of major chocolate brands in the, in the world, like Mars, Hershey's, Mondelez, Nestle, but not much more than a handful of companies, say 10 companies or a dozen companies, produce 90 to 95% of all chocolate in the whole wide world. So it's in the power of these few companies to change, to really change for the better, that whole industry in, in one blow. So that's why we're really sure that it can be done, that you can be commercially successful while still being ethically sound in your complete value chain. And also, if voluntary agreements, and they have shown not to work over the last couple of decades, if that doesn't work, then we need to have more legislation in place, right? And due diligence done by companies to make sure that there are no human rights violations in their complete value chains, right? We want other companies to start embracing the way we work And we'll differentiate based on taste, on packaging, on look and feel, on marketing, on the portfolio of the chocolate bars and the recipes that we launch. But we shouldn't differentiate based on basic human rights. That is where everybody should simply take uh, their moral obligation seriously towards the planet and the society that they operate in. And well, we are really working hard towards that 100% slave-free chocolate worldwide. So not just our own chocolate, but all chocolate in the whole wide world by making everybody responsible. So there's a responsibility in the cocoa industry, there's a responsibility for the retailers that sell chocolate bars, there's a responsibility for consumers that buy the chocolate bars, there's a responsibility for the cocoa farmers to change their farming practices, and there's a huge responsibility for the big choco firms in the chocolate industry that need to change the way they work. Are we there yet? No, not at all. We're a drop in the ocean, unfortunately.
0: from boycotting chocolate which let's face it no one wants to do what can we as consumers do pleading ignorance is over now especially if you listen to this episode we know there are gross abuses and exploitation happening in order to make chocolate have mass appeal so how can we make a difference
2: This is not about us, Tonys. This is is not about our company or our chocolate. This is about all of us taking our responsibility. So anybody in front of a shelf, chocolate shelf or any shelf for that matter, needs to realize that they have the opportunity to vote for the world they want to live in each and every day. You vote through your shopping basket. So you need to be aware of the problems. You need to be aware of what's happening and then make the right purchase decisions, whether that's Tony's chocolate or any other chocolate or any other product for that matter. And retailers at the same time also in my opinion, shouldn't be selling stuff that isn't ethically sound either. But that's a whole different discussion. So really about consumers, it's about being aware and then making the right decisions based on that awareness. If you want to take it a step further, then people need to spread this story because there's such a low level of awareness. So once you know this story, you need to spread this story to friends and family around you and spread a bit of the chocolate and the love around you as well.
0: This is becoming a theme as we delve deeper into Britain and our modern day ties with the slave trade we can't plead ignorance any longer. Digging into the story of Britain's love of chocolate and how it gave birth to some of our biggest brands leaves a sour taste. Cadbury's is merely the tip of the chocolate bar. Behind the familiar royal purple packaging lies a history inextricably entwined with that of Britain's slaving past. From the cocoa, beans and sugar farmed by enslaved labour to the chocolate houses where powerful lawmakers would shape the direction of the empire, the sweet stuff is far more than a treat. It is an emblem of blood, sweat and slavery, with its brutal legacy still intact today. And once more, the story of chocolate has thrown up this disconnect between the treatment of workers in Britain and the enslaved labourers in British colonies. I want to know more about the ordinary people on the ground, the British workers and their involvement with the slave trade. And for that, I'll need to head across the border. If you'd like to learn more about Tony Chocoloni's mission to end slavery in the chocolate industry, there is a link in this episode's description. Human Resources was produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Sound design by Ben Yellowitz. Flute, Sean Herbert, with additional original compositions by Caleb Gurnaley. Extra sound recordings, Sandra Dobrzemski with Jay hope on violin. And our production assistant is Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production.